Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Father Roderick to the Max. And if you're listening to this, you are one of my monthly supporters, and I want to thank you once more for your ongoing support. Um, one of the things that you enable me to do is sometimes uh, acquire new hardware for what I do for my media work. And just recently, I finally was able to get something that was on my wish list for maybe three years now. And that is, I finally bought my first drone. And I can't wait to use the beautiful weather outside to go and try and fly these things into trees and into ponds. And uh, I just don't, don't want to think of all the disasters that can happen. But hey, I'll first read the manual, I promise. But thank you so much for your support. It is thanks to your contributions that I can, from time to time, get new stuff like this. Today we're going to talk about my favorite soup recipe. And when you think soup, you may think winter, but this is a type of soup that I like to eat any time of the year. We'll also talk a little bit about, uh, well, not really this week in history, but something that came up that has to do with my past that I want to discuss briefly with you. Then I'll give you my review of a, a Star Wars comic, um, The Journey to Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, Allegiance. I'll uh, let you know what I thought of that uh, comic. Then I'll briefly discuss the new Harry Potter Lego sets. And, well, it's a mixed bag. Uh, we'll also discuss the Oculus Quest 2 that is apparently in the works. I'll give you a tip on digital board games. And then, of course, we need to talk a little bit about the DJI Mavic Mini Fly More combo that just arrived thanks to uh, the del delivery service of Amazon. Before we do that, we start in the kitchen, where I actually was just uh, 10 minutes ago preparing lunch. I'm recording this around lunchtime. I'm trying to kind of get everything done before the weekend starts. And, uh, well, there's just life is too short for lunch. And while I was having lunch, just a simple sandwich with uh, some lettuce, some cheese, and some hamburger sauce. <laughs> yeah. It's not much, I know. I was watching a few funny videos on, on YouTube, which I love to do when I'm just having a short break. And I stumbled upon this uh, YouTube series where kids try out snacks and food from different countries. And in two particular videos, they were trying out Dutch food. And it's just hilarious to see the reaction of these kids on what for us is very normal stuff that really wouldn't wouldn't raise eyebrows but these kids are like what are you actually eating this and that can be both negative or positive so things that the kids really didn't like was black licorice whereas i have actually a small container of black licorice that is in a cupboard and you know it's kind of my guilty pleasure i i just sometimes when i when i pretend having a sore throat i get some black licorice licorice just to uh smooth things up and you have them in double salt single salt you've got them sugared it's got all sorts of different uh different both forms and also type of of licorice but uh, if you didn't grow up with it apparently it's it is an acquired taste but one that we in Holland acquire at a very, very young age. Now, the, the other thing that, that the kids, 
absolutely loved and, and thought this was, you know, one of the best things since sliced bread, and actually it's something you put on sliced bread, is chocolate sprinkles, or as we call them in Dutch, hagelslag. Try to say that in the Dutch way, hagelslag. You really have to use the guttural... <laughs> the, the word itself does not at all evoke what it is. It's just these tiny... Um, uh, slices of, of chocolate, they actually have them in, it looks like rain, actually frozen rain, but you also have them in different shapes and forms. The thing is, it's just chocolate, and you put it on a buttered piece of sandwich, of bread, and it is so good. And it's very messy. Uh, you can also put it on, uh, on crepes, uh, which is kind of the Dutch uh, version of pancakes. We don't like the fluffy pancakes uh, that people eat in North America. We prefer them uh, without the yeast in it. So it's it's much more like a crepe. But instead of uh, putting salty stuff on it, we put like chocolate sprinkles on it or jam. Or if you are me, some Saturday mornings, both chocolate sprinkles and jam. Just make sure not to tell anyone. But let's talk about something totally different. Soup. One of my uh, childhood memories of a soup that I, I loved but only got, you know, on special occasions when we would get Chinese takeout, which was rare. I would always ask for Chinese takeout on my birthday. And then one thing that I always requested was shark fin soup. Shark fin soup looked nothing like shark had anything that had to do with sharks but it's the name was so fascinating to me i love the taste i love the consistency it's a kind of kind of a, a bit of a, a a blubbery sauce i don't know how to put it in any other words um, so it's it's a thick soup and at the same time it is transparent and when you look at it you can almost see the bottom but it is this kind of almost a gel and it is uh it's nice and salty, and, and there, are, there are these strange white flakes in it, and usually also ham that is cut in small strips. And the ham is usually at the bottom, so you see something like down below in the depths, you see this kind of hint of, of, of pink, but then you've got this, this, this jelly type of soup, um, and the entire soup is, 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 you know, has this almost looks like, I don't know, white confetti or, or mysterious flakes. And I, I, as a child, I was fascinated and I was convinced it was shark fin, those white flakes. That, that had to be shark fin. And then my mom would sometimes say, well, you know what, this is, this is not good. I don't understand why they keep calling it shark fin soup, but because sharks are, you know, endangered species and uh, the Chinese sometimes have these superstitions that certain elements of animals that normally you would never eat are, you know, healthy, have healthy attributes, etc. So she wasn't, uh, she wasn't really a fan of me liking shark fin soup so much, but I would just keep asking it. And I was certain that there had to be you know, some ingredient or at least like, like shark-flavored stuff in it. It was such a magical taste. And it, it's the combination of the taste and then this, this the, the feel of the soup. I, I just didn't know any soup that was as gelatinous as, as this soup. And, uh, and it just had this, these white semi-transparent flakes in it. It was, well, what is this? Well, I finally recently discovered the secret. You know what it is? It's got nothing to do with shark. It is just chicken soup. 
And I was like, what? <laughs> no. Is this just chicken soup? And it turns out it is. Well, chicken soup is good for the soul, they say. So here's how you make it. It is actually one of the simplest recipes you can imagine. First, you need to have some ham. can be any ham. Uh, usually I, I use the ham that I put on a sandwich as well. You take a bit of it, cut it into sh uh, small strips, and you keep that aside. Then you need to separate an egg. Um, and you only need the egg white. So usually I keep the, um, the yellow. Uh, I just you know put it in a pan, and, and, and then later on I can add it to whatever, my, my, my fried rice or something like that. You need the, the egg white. You put it in a, a small bowl. I keep that aside as well. And then you need um, just regular chicken stock. I use the cubes. Uh, usually about a liter of water, two cubes in it. Just look at the the in indications on the packaging, or you can use fresh chicken soup. Although the the why, why, the reason that I use the 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 cubes is that it makes for a very transparent soup, and that's that's kind of part of the of the magic of the soup. So you just prepare it. You just boil the water, put in the the, the cubes. And, well, very quickly those cubes will dissolve in the water and then you're basically done with the you know 90% of the recipe. What you then do, and here's where the magic comes in, you take um, uh, flour. Um, I'm not sure if you can use anything else. Actually, it is uh, potato flour. Is that a... Actually, I'm not even sure if that's, that's potato flour. Let me Google that if that is... This, what I want to say. No, 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 that's not it. Okay, I need to uh, Google Translate that because um, how would you say that in English? I don't want to give you the wrong recipe. Our double meal. Yeah, potato flour. Okay, so potato flour. And it's this white powder. Um, you put that some of that in a cup just a spoon or two spoons. It depends on the quantity of soup. And you can always kind of try it out a little bit and add more if necessary. So you take uh, one or two spoons of potato flour. You add cold water, very important, cold water. You take a fork, mix it up until it becomes this, um, well, basically this, is, this, this white fluid. And then when the soup is boiling, you add it to the soup. You keep stirring the soup. And then after a while, the soup will get thicker. But it will also still be pretty transparent. Don't add too much potato flour. That's important because then you get this blubbery mess. And it is you have to add a lot of water, which will then dilute the taste. So it's better to start with a bit and then add until... And it takes a while. It takes a few minutes to you know, become more consistent as a soup. But once it, you have this, it has to kind of feel like, um, I'm trying to find, like like thin paint or something like that. So it's not like, it should be less fluid than water, but not as thick as, um, as jelly or something like that. Anyway, once you have a certain consistency to the soup, give it another stir, and then you take the cup with the egg white and you whisk the egg white. Not too much. It's, uh, but a little bit. You have to kind of loosen it up. And once you've done that, 
you pour it into the soup while stirring frantically the soup. Make sure you don't burn yourself, but use a, a whisk or a fork and make sure that that egg white uh, fills the, the, the pan. And what you get then, that is what creates these mysterious white flakes. And then, so you have the, the, the transparent soup You've got all these tiny little wood f white flakes. It looks almost as if they're like a, a million fish. If you would look at the sea from up above, from a drone, for instance, you'd see these, these white fish or maybe sharks swimming around. That's kind of what, what it looks like. And once you have that, the only then you're almost done. You could add uh, a few condiments. I sometimes add a bit of white pepper, white because you know, it's less uh, prominent as a color. You want to keep that, that, that transparency in the soup. Um, sometimes I also add a bit of um, oyster sauce, just a tiny bit, just adds a little bit of this kind of a flavor that is slightly different from chicken soup. Um, so a bit of oyster sauce, it's not compulsory, you can just keep it at a chicken soup. Um, sometimes I add a grind, grounded, um, translating, ginger, 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 so uh, ginger powder, a little bit of ginger powder, but you could also try it without it, it tastes just as, just as well. And then uh, you take your bowl, you, you put the the ham, the flakes ham, flakes of ham at the bottom, you pour in the soup, and then you enjoy it. And then you eat the soup that I grew up with. <laughs> and now that I've kind of figured out how to do it, it has lost a lot of its magic. And if you prepare too often, it's like, yeah, it's just gelatinous chicken soup. So uh, I, I try to kind of not overeat this, but if I make an entire pan and I'm still eating uh, uh, shark fin soup for, for most of the week. The, the thing, of course, is that back in the days, long time ago, they would actually put shark fins in it. But I still think that it's probably that they use some, you know, some maybe some stock based on both chicken and and shark fins i don't know i don't i don't want to know it probably didn't taste anything like this but uh, well there you go that's that's how you make shark fin soup and, and and it's good branding because as a child i totally believed that i was you know one of a few kids that was eating shark actually shark uh albeit in a in a um soup form so that would be my recipe of the week Let's do this jingle. It's a bit more appropriate. It's time for some history. Well, when I was in school, uh, I loved languages. Uh, this was in, in secondary school, of course. In primary school, you just le learn Dutch. <laughs> and uh, you, you learn how to, how to write it well. That is actually something that is going downhill for years now. Kids today don't know grammar. They don't know how to spell. It's it's uh, very frustrating. They, they do speak English very well. Usually their spelling in English is better than it is in Dutch. It's uh, worrying. But I was a stickler for 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 Dutch. I love the language. I love to read. So the more you read, of course, the better it, you, you are at using a language and writing in it. Uh, but then in secondary school, I picked all the languages that I could get. So I was learning in first grade uh, French, English, and maybe not German. I think German came afterwards. Latin, that was it. 
And in second grade, they added German to the bunch, and I kept all the other languages. And I never got Greek in, in uh, secondary school. I learned that later in university. So we were basically having lessons in Dutch, uh, and not just grammar and, and, and writing, but also literature, uh, French, which I absolutely loved and still love. It's my favorite language. I love it more than I love English or Dutch. Uh, German and uh, Dutch, English, German, French, and Latin. Five languages. Uh, and then what else did I study? Uh, history. I liked history. Um, did a little bit of physics, but I dropped that at one point. I also did some chemistry, dropped that as well. And then I had mathematics, which I hated and I was terrible at because my brain is just not wired for mathematics. But um, my mom made me keep it. So she said, you have to do something that you're really not good at. It builds character. Yeah. Builds uh, frustration. <laughs> I can tell you that. I'm not sure about the character. And did I do anything else? Uh, I think that was about it. So, so it was very heavily focused on languages. Now, of course, it's not just the language itself that you learn how to write and speak and, and uh, read, but it's also the culture that is connected to these languages. And I have to say that in, in the Netherlands, that is very well done. You, you really get a good grasp of the history of the country, the cultures, the, the customs, the, but, but also literature and poetry and that sort of stuff. So in order to make us uh, read a lot of German, French, English, Dutch, you had to form a list of books that you would read over the, I think, the last three years of secondary school. So I was, I think, 15, maybe, eh, I think 15 when we started reading for that list. And then, it, so within the span of a couple of years, you had to have read a certain minimum amount of books and there would be tests where you would either a written test or a verbal test where you had to make sure that you not only that they... They wanted to make sure that you had read the books and also that you grasped what the book was all about. And you had to pick these books from pre-established lists that were supposed to give you an, a general overview of literature throughout the ages, right? That would be the plan. And I have to say for English, that worked really well. I loved English. I had a fantastic English teacher. And uh, that's probably the language that I mastered best in secondary school because the teacher was so brilliant. And I loved English literature. I devoured every book. I can't imagine, I can't remember any book that I didn't enjoy reading. And it included poetry, it included, you know, British literature, American literature, Canadian literature. Um, I think even maybe even some African books. I'm not sure about that. But anyway, they made sure that we had this whole overview of English literature and I couldn't get enough of it. So that was one. Then French. French was a lot tougher and uh, more difficult to master. And even though I liked the language and I thought it was it sounded beautiful, it was still really hard. Hard to to not to pronounce. Uh, because I was familiar with French because we went on vacation in France uh, very often. So I, as a young child, I already was familiar with the sounds. We used to sing these uh, French children's songs, and we would just learn them phonetically. We didn't know what the songs were about, but I can still 
sing them. And now I was like, oh, it was about a bridge. I did not realize that for, you know, ten, ten, the first 10 years of my life. Sur le pont d'Avignon, on y danse, on y danse. Sur le pont d'Avignon, on y danse tout en rond. That means on the bridge of Avignon, people dance around, dance around, dance around. On the bridge of Avignon, uh, the people dance uh, round and round. And as a child, I was like, that sounded funny. So pronunciation, never really a big problem. But understanding and writing, that was tough. It was pretty different from, from, from Dutch um, as a, you know, it was more akin to Italian, Spanish, uh, Latin. So it, it definitely helped that I also followed Latin lessons, uh, especially for the vocabulary that worked both ways. It was easier to remember French words and it was easier to remember Latin words because oftentimes it would be similar to something in French. Um, French literature was a mixed bag. I remember reading a lot of stuff that I liked. Didn't really love. I can't remember. Sometimes we, they made us read, you know, Camus and, and Sartre, especially later on. And that's pretty heavy-duty stuff. That is not something you read for, for fun. And I would certainly not read it again for fun. <laughs> so, but, well, you know, it wasn't, wasn't too bad. And there were some, some interesting stories in there. But uh, not as good as in English. And then Latin, we didn't have actually a reading list because... We, the only thing, we, we learned Latin the passive way. We should, we should be able to decipher it, uh, read it, but not speak it. Unfortunately, because I, I believe personally that the best way to learn a language and to master it is by actually starting with speaking and not reading. Uh, the sounds are important. The cadence, the, the musicality of, of a language, for me, is the most important aspect. That's how I bluffed my way through Italian while I was studying in Rome. I wasn't very good at the grammar. I was already a bit too old to really master a, a sizable vocabulary, but I was very good at imitating the sounds and the melody of Italian. Dunque, il modo di parlare italiano, di pronunciare, di fare così, this kind of like that, 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 that worked really well, and I fooled, fooled a lot of people. I still do. People still still sometimes think that I speak it very well, but actually it's kind of so-so, but hey, I'm, I'm good at imitating sounds. Um, so one of the languages that we learned in high school that was closest to Dutch is German. Germany is our neighboring country. And a lot of what we speak in, in, in my country is actually almost, you could say, a dialect of German. It's a simplified German. German grammar, vocabulary is a little bit more, um, kind of less worn down than Dutch. So that's what happens with languages. It, it kind of gets um, used up a little bit. And so you get easier pronunciation sometimes when grammar is too too difficult and the, 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 the grammar will mutate. And, and, and that's, I think, what's currently happening in Dutch society as well. What I complain about as an old guy, oh, these youngsters, they don't know how to write properly, is just a language that is mutating and that is being heavily influenced right now by English and by English uh, culture on, on the internet, on social media and movies. Um, and it is also in cities being influenced by, uh, for instance, Turkish. 
because a lot of our uh, young people are uh, from migrant families. And so you get more and more in, in, in let's say, uh, slang in the streets, you will have these words from Arab, from Turkey, from Morocco, from, you know, all sorts of other languages. And it's mixing in the vocabulary. And at one point, they just become mainstream. And, in, you know, instead of complaining about it, uh, I would say go with the flow. Otherwise, English. English is one of the languages that doesn't really not make sense. It is so worn down. It is so inconsistent and illogical and it's a bizarre language, but it's still something that, you know, the grammar police would say, well, this is the proper way to speak it. Well, if you go back in time a couple of centuries, everybody would laugh at you now. That is not English. What kind of English is that? That's not how you say things. So it's, it's, the, it's the nature of languages to mutate, to change, to uh, be influenced by other just like music is is constantly changing, and and what is popular right now may be very different from what we would like to listen to ten years from now. L- listen to the pop songs today on the radio, and compare that to what you listened to when you were a teenager. I mean, it's 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 a different planet, and so languages very akin to music, I think, uh, have that same progression. So anyway, all that to say that Dutch is pretty close to German. And I think, especially around the border of the with with Germany, um, people in in villages and or cities close to the border, they will understand each other perfectly, because there's always this this in between area where people will have the, the this blend. It's it's a dialect that is a mix between, let's say, official German and official Dutch. So that became actually for me the downfall when I was in secondary school, because it was so similar, it sounded so similar, you were actually fooled into believing that you th- that th- that you understood what was said, but it meant something totally different. And then the method that this German teacher used was the worst idea ever. He had a book that he made as, as a vocabulary book that uh, was constantly giving us words that sounded like a word in, in Dutch, but it meant something completely different. And he made us learn vocabulary that way. This word, that sounds like the Dutch word, and it's something different. Remember it. And that just went on and on and on. What it did with my brain, that's why it was the worst idea ever, was just to create confusion. The best way to learn a language is immersion. You just switch off your native language and you dive into this new language. And then learn a language is the way a child would learn it. And there is no parent who will say, hey, this English word for porridge sounds like this Spanish word, but it means something different. In Spanish, it means elephant, and and, and, and here it means porridge. Uh, you don't want to create confusion. You want to separate the two languages. That is, for me, the one reason that when I was studying in Italy, even though I had the opportunity, I refused to take courses in Spanish because I was trying to master Italian first, and I was afraid that if I would do Spanish courses at the same time, which were offered for free at the university, I would end up speaking a blend of Spanish and Italian, like many of our my fellow Spanish students 
when they were trying to speak Italian, they used a lot of uh, Spanish words, uh, like Jesus. <laughs> oh, I didn't want to do that. My friend, Father Henry, actually went to Spain, I think two summers long, to learn Spanish while he was still learning Italian. Well, disaster followed because <laughs> he, he really was unable, his brain was unable to cope with two languages that were so... I so close, so similar. And then you don't get to switch between those languages. So it's better to first learn one language, switch it off, then go to the next language. Once you master that, you can switch back and forth. That's how my brain works, at least. So with German, this this teacher did the total opposite. And so I, it was so hard. You couldn't approach German in an intuitive way. And I speak languages in an intuitive way. I never really focus too much on, on, on English grammar, for instance. I still don't. When I speak English right now, I'm not translating Dutch into English. Not at all. Sometimes when I'm like earlier on in this episode when I was trying to give you the recipe, that's where I stumble upon words that I, oh, I think, I thought I knew how to say that in English, but I actually don't have the vocabulary. So I need to Google it. But once I know that it's ginger, of course, I knew it. I knew that was ginger. But it's so different. Well, actually, ginger is the English word for chember. Chember, ginger. It sounds similar, but I have chember in my head. I see the I have the visual image of what I want to say. And then I was like, my brain is not error accessing hard drive with extra vocabulary because I don't talk about ginger that much, right? So... Uh, but th that's how I, when I speak English right now, I'm not at all thinking about how am I going to say this. I just talk, the words just flow. And even my accent that I use, the the cadence of my phrases, the melody, that is all osmosis. It, it's just, I'm just assimilating stuff that I hear on, on uh, in songs, on the radio. I listen to a lot of American podcasts. You can probably tell. Uh, not too much to, to you know, English, British English. And I, if I try to do the British accent, then it sounds horrible to anyone who's from there because it's, not, it's so unnatural. It is, it's forced. Um, so anyway, but I, I bet you that if I would live in the UK for five years, I would have probably, I would have lost my American accent. Um, so anyway... I like to learn languages the intuitive way, just like a child would learn a language. But with German, we were constantly focusing on grammar, on, on this, this very artificial way of learning vocabulary. So I really disliked German. German was always causing headaches. But then to add insult to injury, German literature. German freaking literature. I hated German literature because this teacher thought that it would be a good idea to not make it too easy on us or, you know, provided we get a good impression of German language and actually loved speaking it. Oh, no. We have to prevent that. So what did he do? He made us read in class. We were... I was 14 or 15 years old, post-World War II literature. Literature that was written literally among the ruins of bombarded cities by um, 
authors that were struggling with the heritage of uh, of the Nazis, of the the horrible crimes that had been committed by by Germans, by fellow Germans. Um, it was the most depressive stuff ever. It was so. Ugh. It was terrible. There was not one glimmer of hope or light or humor in it. It was just pure depression. It was so hard to read. Heinrich Böll. The teacher was reading this in class. And we had to take turns in reading chapters aloud. And I don't remember what the story was about. Usually there was no story, but I do remember the vibe. It was so depressing. I remember we were reading that. I have this mental image of what the classroom looked like. Imagine it's summertime. It's month of May, like now. Outside, the sun is shining. It's warm outside. You hear the birds. You can't wait for this last hour of school to be over. It is four o'clock in the afternoon. You're completely roasted by everything else that you've had. German was right after mathematics. Also, you know, pure punishment for me. And then you sit there. They have lowered the the uh, sun, not the blinds, but um, ah, this red piece of cloth or orange usually to kind of shield us from the sun. So the, the entire class would, would have this orange glow and and th he wouldn't he would turn off the lights because saving energy you know there's a lot a lot of light outside so it's, it's got this this whole like i don't want to be here this is we're not supposed to be in here it's we're supposed to play outside and then it was warm we didn't have air conditioning in holland still don't have that in classes so it was really hot and then we had to take turns reading that totally depressing German literature and dann war es immer über diese you know the, 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 the city was dark und gloomy and people hated each other and the the ruins caused by the bombardments of the English reminded us of the sins of our of our, of, of our own people and uh, with uh, like I was so that, that was the worst punishment ever. I have horrible memories of that of that time. And then it it didn't stop there. Like everything on the list that was suggested to us was terrible. It's just uninspiring, boring, depressing or outright completely incomprehensible books. Like Zarathustra or um oh what, what else did we read so a lot of heinrich bull uh, hermann hesse uh siddhartha oh, i remember siddhartha it was a story that was supposedly taking place in uh, in india or something like that but at the same time it was this soul-searching literature from this severely depressed you know writer i think it was heinrich Hermann Hesse, I think, who was actually has, has been in therapy for most of his life for good reasons if you read his books. And uh, but that book, just like you read it and you're just like, I don't understand a word of what I'm reading. I was like, I read words, I read phrases. It's, apparently there is a story, but why 
am I reading? Why would anyone spend more than five minutes writing this stuff down? Ay, 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 ay. And um, there were a few exceptions to the rule. There was this, I think it was a, a book about chess, a chess tournament, Schachnovelle. It was a very uh, easy read. I think it was only 110 pages or something like that. Or something you'd read in an afternoon. And it was, it was a compelling story. But it was kind of poo-pooed by my teacher who said, oh, it's actually not really literature because it's a fun story. Literature is not supposed to be fun. Literature has to make you make you think about your life. Think about all your mistakes and 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 despair. And if 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 a book doesn't f- give you this feeling of despair, then it can't really be considered to be literature. <laughs> so, and then it was actually a huge list of books that we had to read. And remember, I was doing five languages in school. For four of them, I had this reading list. So the last years, most of my spare time, I was just reading, 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 trying to plow through all these books from different ages, different languages. And then during these exams, especially the last year, we had, I think, three intermediate tests for which you had to read books, and then there was one final test. So sometimes I would read four or five books per week because I wasn't always in the mood to to read literature and that is kind of the downside of this whole system. Yes, you do read a lot of literature but you read it while you are 16 or 17 years old. So what the heck do you know about the world? How can you grasp the brilliance of, of, of writers and books and literature if you haven't seen anything of the world? I personally think that now I'm old enough to 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 re- read li- real literature. N- now this would really enrich. Most of these writers had my age when they were writing, so why do they do we force children to read this stuff? They cannot appreciate it. And the only thing it, it actually did was to complete me, co- to make me feel, to make me hate German, to make me hate German literature. I would never voluntarily read. German literature in my life. There were, another exception was Thomas Mann, the Zauberberg, uh, the, 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 the magical mountain or something like that. It was 900 pages. Huge book, but it counted for two or three books. So I was like, okay, that's a bargain. I'm just going to read that book. It's one story. So I'll, I'll be able to read. So I sped, speed read through it. <sighs> and it was a, a, a nice... It, it, just the fact that it was not depressing, that was already, for me like heaven <laughs> in German literature. But since then, I've really never read German literature. Was that the, was that what you wanted as a teacher? Seriously? <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, years of therapy, years of therapy. <laughs> the exception being English. I still love English. I love to speak it. And later on, when because I went to study in French in the French part of Belgium, I loved French, and I read it very well. I speak it very well. So I feel totally at ease, and I can enjoy French literature as well. Italian, that's that's another thing. I only learned Italian when I was going to Rome, so I was old. I was 20... I've been ordained at 28, five years later. Yeah, 30... I was 33 when I went to Rome, I think. And so I had to learn Italian... 
um, actually at an age where normally you don't really master a language anymore because your brain just starts degrading after a, after a, a while. And so, but anyway, I was motivated to speak it a little bit because I just needed it. And I'm glad I did. But then I also tried Italian literature because Italy is really a, a, a country of bookies. They love their books. And, so, and, and they're pretty cheap. So I picked up some uh, Italian books. But Italian has uh, a certain grammar form that they only use in books. And so it's a written, a written past tense or something like that. And you never use it in, when you speak Italian. You never hear it, only when someone reads a book or reads the Bible. Um, and so that made it very hard to read Italian literature because you would constantly struggle with that, that, that those forms that you never use in day-to-day -day language, only in books. And so Italian also gave me the same feeling as, as German literature when I was young. And so I stopped reading Italian literature. I was like, ah, oh, this reminds me too much of all those depressing years in, in high school when they forced us to read all this, this, this horrible literature. So I apologize if some of you do like German literature. It's not your fault. But it's, it, it shows you how much of a difference it makes to have a good teacher or a teacher that is not so good. In my case, the teacher probably was a fine man and well-intentioned, but his style of teaching accomplished the opposite of what I think he wanted. It resulted in me still not being comfortable in German, whereas any other language, I get along and I kind of enjoy speaking it, not German. Oh, well. It is what it is. Uh, now it's time for the next segment. Ooh, loud music. I really have to get rid of this jingle. It's way too loud. My ears just exploded. Comics. The journey to Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. This just appeared on my uh, Marvel Ultimate, uh, what is it? Marvel Unlimited. Marvel Unlimited account. Uh, usually they, uh, they first want to sell the the comic so it it takes a while usually about a year for for the comics to be freely available if you have a subscription and so just recently this whole series leading up to the premiere of the rise of skywalker appeared right in time actually for the digital release on disney plus of the rise of skywalker so um couldn't be a better uh timing the first the first book in this series, I think it's like four or five episodes long. It's not a big comic book. I think it's just 20 pages or something like that. Uh, it's called Allegiance. And it is b focused on Rey and on Finn. And there's good and there's bad. Let me start with the good. It is very nicely done. I love the, the coloring, mostly. Um, also, the inking—it's—it's—it looks good. It—it it, it feels appropriate to something that is based on a film franchise. So it looks filmic. The composition of the panels is—is—is is, is conventional, but still, it's kind of what you expect. Uh, it doesn't try to be too fancy, but it is really good quality comic uh, style. Uh, coloring is—is is 
even more exceptional. I really love the use of colors. It creates different moods for like an entire page can look almost orangey, yellowish. So it's it's very much in in style with the the movies themselves that try to create these these environments that are as they they always try Lucasfilm to make every planet look have its own distinctive color, its own distinctive feel to it so you've got the you know hearth which is all ice and white and blue um, but then you also have this salt covered planet in uh, the last jedi where you know it looked like snow but it wasn't it was salt and then you have these 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 uh, what is it flying flying things which kind of when they hit the ground all of a sudden underneath the white cover of of salt there is this red dust or whatever and it, it just creates this iconic look but you also have jungle planets with the ewoks you've got this this red planet uh mustafar uh where where vader built his, his palace um which you see at the beginning of the rise of skywalker so usually the the settings have dominant colors and this comic book does exactly that it creates like the first few pages all yellow and a bit a bit of beige and and, and it, it shows ray trying to defeat this huge horned monster quite similar to the one that attacks the mandalorian at one point where he has to retrieve the egg for the jawas anyway um and then next you see finn and he is actually in a um i think more on a planet like a gambling city or whatever and everything looks kind of purple and uh purple and and, and pink it's moody and 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 lovely done w very well done the bad and eh, the story it is like fluff it's like uh, okay yeah well not very consequential doesn't reveal anything at least not the fir this first episode uh, that that will help you. I don't know, see the events in the Rise of Skywalker under dif different light, and it doesn't even feel like something that that would be a, um, a, a film in itself. So um, for me, the the criterion of uh, a series leading up to the movie release is: does it really feel like something that could have been part of the of the movie? And in this case, I would say no. No, 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 no. It's too different in style, in tone. Um, it's just... Even if, as a comic book story, it feels a bit too generic, too much like a lot of the Marvel superhero um, comics from the 80s, the last century, where it's just one inconsequential adventure after another and nothing really matters. And it's just, you know, a fight here, a monster there, and then, yeah, okay whatever forgettable that's forgettable it's not a good story so hopefully the rest of the series will be better i will keep reading because well it's free so why not let's talk about lego the lego set that i enjoyed building the most in my life has been hogwarts castle uh it was a multi-month project as you've been able to see if you follow me on youtube youtube.com slash father roderick as you know um but it's a it's a great beautiful structure um the second biggest project that i did was the millennium falcon i love the final result but the building of the millennium falcon wasn't 
at all fun. It was very technical, very boring. And only in the very last moment, the whole thing came together. And it was like, oh, that actually looks pretty cool. But the, the Hogwarts castle was just pure fun. Every step of the building process was fun. The downside, the only downside is that the entire castle is built in micro style. So it, it does not work with regular minifigures of Lego. Well, they also released a line of, of Harry Potter-based uh, sets that does co accommodate uh, the minifigures. And so it's kind of more in this, in this, for the size of these minifigures. And they've been releasing a couple of sets in previous years that are okay. Um, and they just recently uh, released a couple more, which kind of surprised me because Harry Potter is a franchise that is kind of invisible right now. The Fantastic Beasts uh, series has been pushed back, uh, both because of casting issues, you know, that uh, whole Johnny Depp stuff going on, and I figured they just wanted to give that some time to peter out in the press so that they could uh, continue to have Johnny Depp play the villain in uh, in that series, and then um, also because of the, the whole corona crisis, probably. So it will be a while until we see the next installment of that franchise and then the harry potter series itself is you know it's a long time ago it's not available on any streaming platform right now maybe in some countries on netflix i'm not sure but uh, i think it is right now currently it's on amazon prime i have to correct myself it's on amazon prime but not everywhere and even on amazon prime it's kind of stowed away it's not really that much of a big deal uh, most Harry Potter fans will own the DVDs or the Blu-rays or whatever. So, but apparently it, it, this is still a viable franchise for Lego and they keep selling these sets enough to make new ones. So for two, for this year, 2020, they've issued a set from the movie Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. And it is a set based on the Astronomy Tower. That's a tower where a certain wizard... Uh, met an unfortunate end for those of you that haven't read the books or watched the movies i will not spoil it but it's pretty dramatic so it is a pretty important set but the building itself is hardly ever seen from the outside it's kind of in the back of the of the castle but nevertheless lego gave us a pretty big set with a ton of minifigures you have um harry potter of course hermione horace slughorn I don't think we've seen that one before. Or, anyway, I don't remember having seen that character. Luna Lovegood uh, was already available uh, in, in Lego form in minifigure. This one looks slightly different. You've got Neville Longbottom, of course, the kind of anti-hero. turns out to become a hero later on in the story. Ron Weasley, of course, no, no Harry Potter set without it. But again, different clothes. You've got Lavender Brown and Draco Malfoy. Um, and Draco is pretty well done. I think, it, again, a different different type. All the minifigures, of course, span the ages of the actors, uh, and so there are many different Harry Potters, different Dracos, different Hermiones, etc. Um, and there is a new Hedwig minifigure that may actually be the most collectible aspect of this set because it's a... Uh, an owl in flight, whereas the previous Hedwigs were all just owl, white owls sitting. But this one is flying, and it looks pretty good. 
The castle itself, however, is really meh. It, it, there is something wrong with these play sets. And it, they're meant for younger kids and to play with. So it's more a bit of a dollhouse. It doesn't really want to be realistic. And still, I don't at all like the style. They use these, these mint green pieces that look so out of place. There are bright green plants that are also way too toyish to... Uh, it, it just takes away from the realism of the building. And then it's all... These are all open buildings, so they're like dollhouses. The, uh, the, you, can, you have rooms on the other side of the castle, just like the, you know, the big set. But the big set, still, when you look at, at it from the front, it feels like one solid building. With this, you can totally see that it's just a decor. It's just a set. It, it doesn't feel like something that stands on itself. It is meant to be played with. And then just architecturally doesn't look anything like what you see in the movies. So uh, disappointing. Not not very good. And then they, there are some smaller sets. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's pretty expensive. It's 100 bucks. The, the, the Astronomy Tower comes out on August the 1st, and I'm not a fan. Uh, there's another set that is kind of interesting. It is the uh, playset for the Room of Requirement. Uh, the Room of Requirement is this big storage room uh, where you have to basically say or, or cast a spell to find what you what you search for. Um, the oh, wait a minute, no, I'm I'm I think I'm maybe I'm confused. You've got the Room of Requirement, and you have that big storage room. Are they the same? Anyway, it's the, the headquarters for Dumbledore's army with the, the invisible door, right? What was the name of that big storage hall? Was that the Room of Requirement as well? I'm just going to Google it, take a look at the images. The Room of Requirement is kind of empty. No, it is. It is the same place. How is that possible? In the movies, it looks empty. Maybe it's another part of the Room of Requirement. No, because there's also this place where it looks like a warehouse. It's very messy. I, it's been a while since I, since I read the books. Yeah, it's got both. Yeah, but the, the, the one where you see Dumbledore's army train is completely empty. Anyway. Doesn't really matter. The set itself is very very simple it's basically just a wall with a door and it's got a fireplace and then some uh, blue transparent windows for some reason and that's about it and then you've got a few characters it's got uh, harry hermione and luna and then but what makes this set i think interesting for collectors is that it has more patronus figures they already did a transparent uh, Patronus for the, um, the I think it is Snape's Patronus that protects Harry when he's attacked by the, the soul-sucking... Uh, 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 what were they called? I was, I'm constantly thinking ring wraiths, but they look like ring wraiths, but they are dementors, dementors. So anyway, uh, and, 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 and this set has a hare and an otter. Uh, and they're both transparent blue, which is something that we've never seen in Lego. 
and I like it. It looks cool, but is it worth buying the set? Probably not. So the set itself is cheap. It's just 20 bucks, but it is super simple. It doesn't almost doesn't really look like a set. It's just a bunch of minifigures and then and a, and a backdrop. That's it. The the next set is much more interesting and much much more creative as well. And it shows a scene from Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. And it takes place in the Forbidden Forest where uh, uh, Professor Umbridge, uh, together with Harry and Hermione, meet Hagrid's half-brother, Grop, uh, who is this giant. Uh, I mean, Hagrid is a half-giant, but Grop, or Grop, I should say, is a real giant. And it is a buildable figure. Still has a face. And this is, I think, really well done. It does look like the giant that we saw in the movies. And at the same time, it is really Lego. And uh, I love the combination of, of building something, and, and yet it still is a, is a character that fits with the mini-scale figure. So it, it's really well done. It also features, I think this is the first time, two centaurs. Uh, also living in the Forbidden Forest. So um, this set, I think, is going to be very popular. It is uh, a little bit more expensive. It's uh, 30 bucks, but you get much more, I think. You get this unique giant, which we've never seen in Lego form, and you've got the centaurs, which are pretty great. And, of course, Umbridge, which I think they released earlier on as well. But Umbridge is such an iconic evil teacher that, uh, yeah, totally think that that was a smart person and plus of course she she is uh, at one point kind of punished by the by the giant in the story so that's a very very cool set actually the one that i liked that i liked the most you also get a a, a tree which is not very well done it's just one of those lego trees that kind of feels like a half-baked tree it's 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 like yeah if you do a tree you do a big tree do it well make it a real tree not something that is has kind of the, like the base of a tree, and then the rest is just hinting at stuff. Like, make it a real tree. Make the set a little bit more expensive. Anyway, that's my take on it. So that was my review of the Lego sets. And with that, it is time for the last segment. And the last segment is always uh, dedicated to anything digital. And I've got three topics here to talk about briefly. The Oculus Quest 2. I'm a huge fan of VR. No, no surprise there. Uh, the Oculus Quest is definitely the best-selling headset for Facebook. Maybe the only one that really shows what, in what direction this technology is going. It has to be standalone, and it has to be affordable enough. So the Oculus Quest is pretty popular. It's hard to get because of the corona crisis. A lot of the production has, has halted or slowed down. But it doesn't stop Facebook from continuing work on a second version of the Oculus Quest. According to what I read on Tom's Guide, um, the Oculus Quest 2 is going to have a few important upgrades. First of all, it's probably going to be a lot smaller and lighter. As the only downside of the Oculus Quest compared to the, the Oculus Go is that it is a bit front-heavy. Um, I don't mind because I only use it for about an hour at, 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 at a time. But apparently if you use the Quest for multiple hours per day, it does get annoying. And also the, the refresh rate of the screens on the inside of the goggles is only 50 hertz, I think. So um, apparently that can create a bit of fatigue 
after a while, and so they're they're looking into upping the frequency to 90 hertz or maybe even 150, like in the more more expensive headsets. Uh, it's going to be standalone. It's still going to use uh, uh, mobile phone type chips and graphics processing, um, but more powerful because, of course, every year these mobile phone companies release you know hugely more more powerful hardware for the same price uh look at apple how much every ipad every phone is getting more and more powerful some of these phones are more powerful than a desktop computer it's a shame that you'd never really experience any you don't really get the advantages of 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 that technology in mobile phones because why, do you, why would you need that in a mobile phone? But the same technology is now applied to the world of VR, and all of a sudden it makes sense because VR is very uh, demanding when it comes to, to uh, processing power. So for that, I am happy that uh, mobile phone uh, companies are still competing with each other and trying to uh, up their game every year because it will ultimately be super handy for very powerful standalone headsets. So Oculus Quest is going to have more powerful chips, what I think what they're going to do is probably make it backwards compatible, just like what Xbox do does. So you can play the older software on newer headsets. You can't play the newer games on the older headsets. Something like that. We'll see. We'll have to wait and see. The distribution and final production is probably going to be delayed by the corona crisis, like almost everything right now. Then, if you are bored during the corona crisis and you like board games, but you don't have any friends to play them with, and you can't because social distancing, then there is a digital alternative. And one of the m best known uh, producers of, of um, board games that you can play online with friends is Asmodee. They are the makers of, for instance, Carcassonne. Uh, pandemic, uh, uh, Mysterium, uh, all that. Now, normally these games are pretty expensive, but uh, on HumbleBundle.com, which is a company that uh, allows you to buy games and donate a percentage of the price you pay to charity, has created a bundle together with Asmodee for, uh, uh, that consists of all these board games, and it's a really good deal. Um, I already have a ton of these games, so I'm not sure if I am going to purchase this. There are still some elements in this bundle that I don't have and don't own, so maybe just for the expansions. I'll have to calculate if it, uh, if it saves me money or not. But uh, let me just read through a couple of these uh, board games and give you a quick, 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 quick review. Uh, the first batch is only one euro, probably also one dollar, already is a must-buy because it's got Carcassonne Tiles and Tactics. So it's the base game for Carcassonne. It is so much fun. And also you can play it against the computer, which is also fun. It's got Patchwork, which I've never played, but I think it's okay. And then it's got another really good board game, very well translated into a digital, you know, video game, is Small World 2. That game alone would be worth, well, any of these games would be worth one buck. But Small World 2 is a very, very cool board game. One of the first ones that I ever played. So Then it also contains King and Assassins. I don't think I've played that one. Love Letter and Potion Explosion. All those are new additions. So that is a must-buy. If only for Small World 2 and Carcassonne. Then 
for nine euros and ten cents, I don't know the equivalent in dollars, you get uh, the next tier of games, Splendor, and then two extensions to that. I've never played it, heard good things about it. It's got Mysterium, which is kind of an associative game. It is interesting. I've played it a ton of times. And it's it's okay. It's not it's not one of my favorite games, but it is fun. It's you play it against the computer with with friends, so it's a more cooperative game. And then this tier also includes two Carcassonne expansions, the Winter Edition and Traders and Builders. Um, if you love Carcassonne and you want to kind of uh, change up the game, then those two would be, uh, I think, worth. Well, I'm not sure if it's worth. Nine bucks. So I would say look into Splendor and Mysterium. See if you look at a few reviews online. If if you like that, if you if you think you're going to play those, then that may be worth it. And then uh, this uh, second tier also contains uh, two expansions to Small World Two, and I didn't notice those before. So maybe that would be a reason for me to actually get them. Then it also has another board game, Twilight Struggle. Never heard about. Change the course of history. And then for just eleven euros so that's just two bucks more than nine so if you go for the second tier then you should absolutely go for the third tier because that one contains three more carcassonne expansions the river inns and cathedrals and the princess and the dragon especially inns and cathedrals and the river are i think compulsory if you like carcassonne but in addition to that also uh, adds another addition another expansion to mysterium it contains the lord of the rings adventure card game which is kind of okay uh, nice artwork, um, but not very popular. It's got Scythe, which is a very tough game to play, but it's got really cool artwork. I played it only once, and I thought it was very demanding, very challenging, but I think if you play it long enough, it's actually really worth the investment of your time. It's got a Mysterium, another Mysterium d uh, DLC, and some Small World stuff, and then uh, another Splendor DLC. So for only two bucks more, I think it's worth it because you get a lot of Carcassonne stuff and you got Scythe, which, you know, even though it's, it's, uh, it's difficult to master... It's still a game with a lot of depth, and uh, you, I, I don't think it's possible to pick it up for 11 bucks normally. I know that the real board game is expensive, very expensive. So anyway, that would be my, my review of those games. Final uh, digital, well, semi-digital hardware thing is, of course, my drone. I got, I got the, the smallest drone on the market right now, except for the toy ones, of course. This is still a professional drone made by GGI. It's the leading brand when it comes to drones. And the Mavic Mini is a tiny little drone. I've always dreamt of having a drone so small that I could take it with me on the road to Santiago. It's the one regret that I have is that while I was filming the road to Santiago, I didn't have a drone because it would have added so much to the footage because the views, the, the landscape in Spain, it's amazing. And it will probably be another year, maybe two years, before the, the, the road to Santiago will open to pilgrims again. And what will be left of all those albergs that are now you know, bank in bankruptcy because of there are no more pilgrims. It is, it's really dramatic, and I, I'm so nostalgic. I really want to walk it again, but this time I want a drone. And that Mavic Mini is so tiny that it doesn't even... Uh, the, the, the rules that they're now implementing all over Europe don't apply to this drone because it's so small that it is re regarded 
as a drone. I think it's only 250 grams or something like that. It is unbelievably small, but still pretty po pretty powerful. So I'm going to use this Mavic Mini to add to, first of all, to, to learn how to fly a drone. And then I want to integrate that footage, that drone footage in my programs and in my documentary. Speaking of which, I'm currently, I, I got to give you a status update on the documentaries that I make for the international market. Um, I have sent the full voiceover texts of my Ireland episodes to uh, one of my listeners who actually is a professional translator. However, she hasn't responded to my email yet. I sent it to her about two weeks ago, I think. So maybe it's just, you know, she's busy with uh, the corona situation. I don't blame anyone because I'm super busy as well. Um, so and I'll still, it's, it's, the text is too big for me to translate by myself. I just don't have the time. But if uh, she can't do it, I, I may actually uh, switch first to Scotland because Scotland is a lot less work, uh, fewer voiceover texts because I did a lot on camera. So um, that edit is almost, uh, is actually entirely done. The only thing that needs to be done is to translate the voiceovers. Uh, we need to patch that into the edit. And then the biggest work, that remains to be done there is rescoring the entire documentary because we used uh, copyrighted music, which is fine on TV, but it's not fine on YouTube, not at all. So all that has to be uh, rescored, which is going to take a lot of time and it's going to be expensive, unfortunately. So that's another reason that I'm happy that I have supporters on Patreon because that sort of stuff, if I have to do it alone, if I have to do it by myself, I don't think I'll ever be able to do it but I can now hire people to do it for me. Um, but unfortunately, it is, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty expensive stuff. It takes hours and hours and hours to, to adapt uh, a documentary or to make a documentary uh, <laughs> in itself, but also to adapt it in another language. That is even more work. But at least we made another step, so it's coming. Just a little bit more patience. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. Take care. <laughs>